I'm Richard Lannan, Rides with Cannon, and this is the Glazing Insider Industry Podcast. Wayne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. How did you get into the fenestration world? Okay. Um, going back about 15 years ago, I started working with Everest. How I got there was quite a long story. That's fine. We've got time. Okay, good. I used to work in uh, Cyprus, Northern Cyprus. I had my own business there for some eight years. When we sold the business, I needed to go back and forth for about two years. And I needed a job which was flexible, which had a good income that kind of worked around Monday to Thursday. There wasn't many jobs out there like that. So I ended up knocking doors. Wow. So I ended up knocking doors for the electronics industry and then for the energy industry. Um, a friend of mine was sales director of EDF Energy. And I called him. I said, look, you've got loads of sales guys who work for you, loads of sales managers. You want me to come head some of your sales teams up? Your best friend since I was 20 years old. And he said, okay, so what do you want? And I said, yeah, I want to head the sales team up, you know, possibly your sales director. And he laughed. He said, look, you've been away from this country for too long. I'll find you something. But with the hours you want to work, it's not going to be as a sales manager or sales director. So, okay. So he phones me up. He said, I've got a perfect job for you. I want you to go and run our foot can teams, knocking doors. So I was like, felt a little bit insulted, to be fair. I was like, I, I, I ain't doing that, you know? So you know, I've been living abroad, living this life for eight years, kind of forgot my roots. Anyway, three days later, I phoned him back and said, is that job still available? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, if you want it. So um, I ended up 18 months on doors and running teams and made a tremendous living out of it and really enjoyed it. There was no pressure. It was freedom. It was talking to people. Uh, when I first did the job, it was 10 hours a day in the freezing cold through January, February, March. But it was refreshing. Moving forward, Everest was a very self-generated business. The sales leads come from door can and door knocking. And I chased down a job that I see advertised for an agent. And I went direct to the sales director. And he said, you've got like 20 seconds to pitch me. And I said, I knock doors for a living. I earn X amount. I'm really good. And, you know, and I just gave it my heart. It's okay. HR directs called me within two weeks. I was a divisional sales manager at Everest just because I'd knocked doors. Nothing to do with fenestration. I've been a salesman all my life, I guess, one way or the other. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, that's how I ended up in the fenestration industry through my link of knocking doors. Wow. So first question, what was the business you had in Cyprus? It was a property development business. Right. And then we bought an estate agent. So we was, you know, there for some years. So how did you even end up there in, in Cyprus? It was one New Year's Eve and I had some friends over, uh, an English friend and a, um, a Turkish Cypriot friend. And so we're out to um, Cyprus next week to buy ourselves an apartment. Okay, that sounds good. We've been thinking about, you know, doing something similar. And it was really, really cheap money, even at that time. So I was like, I said to my wife at the time, should we go? And... Uh, buy one you know and uh, have a little look so I said okay best of it cut a long story short went out loved the country loved the people didn't buy an apartment bought a piece of land built a house and decided at that point let's go and do something different it was really spontaneous had a reasonable career in the UK for a while and uh, we just went for it and we moved out 
and eight years later, I was still there. Wow. And we, we, we went, that was how we ended up out there. So what job did you have when you decided to move over there? What, what were you? I was um, memory micro. Uh, so back in the day, it would have been microchips that maybe even powered up a, a calculator. Then soon after mobile films, I was a broker. So I worked on the grey market, broke in chips that, say, to sheep couldn't get through the normal channels. I would go to the grey market. I'd source them from Japan. It would have been Korea at the time an emerging market and I'd ship them straight into Toshiba and they'd pay me a commission with broker chips basically. So that's, that's wow. what I was doing for quite a lot of years. How did you even get into that then? I've got to pick back to that now. Oh, you, you almost take me back to school somewhere along the line. When, when, I, le- when I left school, I worked for a bank. I worked for NatWest Bank for, for, for a few years and then I went to work in the city because I wanted to be a broker. I wanted to be a money broker. I can't right. remember why. Probably the money. Yeah. Um, and I got up there at the age of about 18, 19 and couldn't get my sort of qualifications until I was 21. So I was a backroom broker. Um, and then I learned through an opportunity that you could be a broker in other industries as well. You didn't have to be in the city. And there was an emerging market and the internet was going to start livening things up. Although at that point, it, you know, it was just yeah. flickering the eye. So yeah, I went and worked for a business which dealt with memory micro and then we got an opportunity myself and a, another broker um, who was much more older and more mature with a company to fund us to set us up and we set up and we had some great years of we were just independent brokers wow. using someone else's money paying them a commission and taking our own wow. and that's what led through the journey and we stopped went to Cyprus so you was yeah I could sort of see that so you were sort of I suppose you've got to go with the journey. It sort yeah. of happened for so a reason. The flow, yeah, we, we, we was, yeah, we was lucky. It just The flow was perfect. It worked, worked really well. You know, there's, there's some real dream jobs in there. You know, they have their hard times, but it's dream jobs. And then that kind of, you yeah, know, somehow that knocked on. Knocked on and knocked on and knocked on. So what, going back to Cyprus then, I mean, it's, a lot of people have told me I've never actually been, but it's very much like this country, roads, everything, infrastructure, but you get better weather. Yeah, you've got two sides of Cyprus. You've got the Greek side, the Turkish side. We was on the Turkish side, which is got the only unrecognised capital in the world, uh, Nicosia. So it was very, the southern side, which my daughter was born on the southern side, my first daughter, etc. It's very behind the times. It's beautiful, but no real road network when we arrived. Only mains electricity is probably to 25% of the country. Water was delivered by tanker. Wow. Second-hand cars, which would cost £2,000, cost £20,000 there. It's quite a corrupt area, really. You know, So we, we, we was, we're some of the first Brits to, to properly settle and form a business there. You know, there's, a few, you know, there's a few before us, but not many. Mm. By the time we left, it was the, the capital would open so you could cross north to south by the border. It'd become more like one country. It hadn't unified, but it done its best it could. So, so, so we was there. We see history. We see the, the, the borders open for the first time since the war, since the genocide that went on, you know, back in early 70s or whatever it was. And so we see some good history and we see it open up. Wow. So, yeah, the weather's great. It's beautiful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was cheap to live and, you know, and, and it, yeah, it was good. It was exciting. But from your point of view, I suppose what you was doing day to day anyway, deals and, and, you know, brokering, you, it wasn't really as much of a gamble as it would be for someone in a stable job that, you know, they didn't get the thrill from making a deal. 
Yeah, I think when you've got no children and if you're that way inclined, you know, I, I never travelled, I never had gap years, never went to uni, never travelled, but I probably always wanted to do it really. So this was my point to say, okay, is travelling of a sort. And the idea would always be how to use that base to go Middle East and move to different places. It didn't quite work like that because I got there, started working and worked and worked and worked, you know, so. But yeah, it was good. So to come back, mm-hmm. what what made you come back? I think after a period of time, anyone's lived abroad, you do your time. So England's got so much to offer. Yeah, when people come on holiday and you, you know, see the beautiful sea and the lifestyle, and it is good, but family, green grass, mm. rain. Now I work out of Wales, it's not so attractive. <laughs> but, you know, but, but it, it was, you know, you just do your time. You naturally do your time. And it's like young child, education, and it, time was just up. Yeah, basically, you know, it, it just, just time was up. That that was it. So it was coming back was hard because it was a, a massive lifestyle change. It was starting again because you've kind of built nothing in the UK for sort of eight ten years. What you built in Cyprus is a lot cheaper, a lot. You know, mm. you've, you've you kind of missed some, some some life's coming back, and you've got to finish up the life that you led. You can't just move from one country to other. You've got commitments. You've got businesses. You've got all sorts of stuff, which led me into knocking doors which was something i never thought i'd do didn't mind it but you know it was just something i never envisaged no and it's well it's up there with telesales isn't it you sort of uh calling and, and knocking on yeah. literally knocking on so it's great because you get to talk to different people every day every minute of every day you know what i found knocking on doors there's majority of people the vast majority of people are really nice I always knocked for a conversation. I never knocked to sell them anything. Mm. They just bought off me. That that was it. So I I I went out almost every day and enjoyed conversations with people. So, uh, so you actually, you, I know you're running this team, but you were out there as well with them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah that yeah, when yeah. you told me, you said yeah. that. I, I was yeah, sort of like, that's different because yeah, not everyone would do that. Small team, but if you're not knocking doors with them and leading the way and being top of what you do, then they're not going to come out. Mm. You know, as simple as that. And that, and that, you know, that was in the day where, okay, there wasn't much legislation, but there was a lot more professionalism behind it. Yeah. You wore a shirt, you wore a tie, you presented yourself. There's a code of conduct. The, these days, in the code of conduct, it wouldn't happen. However, th- there were a lot of good people giving a good service. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I never, none of my team never missold. They sold a good product and they enjoyed doing it. So it was good. Right. It was good. So you then went from there then. So you, you were at Everest. Yep. What was what happened next? What where did you go from there? Or did you stay there longer? I, I was there um for a stretch of about five years. I took a little break in between. They got bought out by a venture capitalists. I took a break. They asked me to go back. When I say a break, it was just it, it, it was a bit like the Wild West as those kind of things got taken over, but, you know, a great move for Everest. So um, be- between starting as a divisional manager, there was 30 of us. It was a big organisation, big sales and marketing. You know, people, it's organically grown, that business. No one come in at that level. Mm. So I was extremely lucky to get the opportunity to go in at that level. That 32 become 16, that 16 become 8, that 8 become 4, and at that point was promoted to directors. 
divisional sales directors. There was four of us, and they brought a new sales director in. Who uh, was the ex sales director Sky? So right. he he had a lot of experience. Good friend now. A lot of talent. Learned so much off of him. And and those two years were like working for what you wouldn't imagine a double glazing company. He sort of brought a bit of class to it, changed things around, shook it up a bit, and brought his experience in. Yeah. So really, you know, my, my, my time at Everest, most of it was really, really enjoyable. Met a lot of good people. Not not what you imagine from the double glazing industry. Mm. If, if, if You know, yeah. it's stereotypical. Okay, so there's a big percentage that is like it, but there's also a big percentage that isn't. There's a lot of talented people in that industry. Yeah, and I have met some other yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, yeah, they, they sort of at yeah. some events you sort of go, oh, I used to sell yeah, Everest yeah. and things like that. And it's, I was impressed by their training, you know, and, and mm. everything that they do, but it's it's a system, isn't it? It's to get people to the level that they need to be at. Yeah. And that's investing in people at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I think not yeah. everyone works out, but then you could say the same about most companies. Yeah. So it's a great, it's a great early day marketing machine. You know, I was there quite late. People have been there 10, 20 years before and 30 years before. And I've still got friends who have been there 40 years, you know. Mm. Uh, that, that is all they've done, you know. But they've made some fantastic living there. But, but, but that's all they've done. That's all they've ever known. And, you know, they've, they've harbored such talent. But you have to throw a lot of people at the wall. The ones who stick generally are the talent. You know, obviously as, as time's gone on, double glazing and salespeople, rightfully so, have got bad reputations because some companies haven't moved with time. You know, you know, they haven't looked at the consumer. They've ignored social media. They've ignored review. You know, they, they just haven't moved along with the times. And I think that's probably where it's like getting a bad name. You know, the, the, the consumer become more savvy. They know how to buy. They don't want someone sitting in the house for 10 hours at a time. They don't want a price for 50,000 pounds dropped to 10,000 no. pounds. Uh, and so many companies didn't recognize that really. So, but they were, I mean, from a, a, a big company without getting into them too much, I suppose it's more, uh, did they hire their own staff everywhere or was it a lot of people subcontracted? Yes. Yeah, so all the sales staff were self-employed. Right. So, you know, to, to take that job, you asked one or two things. You were desperate and couldn't get a job anywhere else because it was self-employed. We was extremely talented and believed that you was a great salesperson. And then that, that, that training went ahead. Right. I see. And it's, that's, but that's, uh, I've kind of explained it to even sort of people that I've been talking to, because you get to the, you know, the size that they are, they're known. If someone thinks about double glazing, name. their name will yeah, come yeah. up, Household you name. know, the, the local double glazing company may come up if they're, you know, they're talking with friends, family, and it comes up that way. But Everest were on TV, mm. it, it would guarantee that you would hear it. And some people did have good experience with them. And, you know, I had customers say, oh, we've had friends and they've used them. And I said, well, mm. absolutely fine. I said, but in that sense, just make sure you get the same fitters. You know, if they had a good experience yeah, all the yeah. way through, just yeah. ask for those fitters and yeah. you'll be fine. Yeah. You know, and it's it's that kind of thing. But everyone's got a take on it. Everyone's got their own opinion. And, you know, even some local companies can have a bad day. So it's one of those things. I was always intrigued that I didn't. So I used to sell. Right. And I didn't come up against them very often because oh. I think our area, we had, there's about three or four of us that would be in there. You, you know what it's like. Yeah, yeah. You get, you're thinking of double glazing. Let's, let's bring these three in. That's fine. But national companies would come mm -hmm. in occasionally. And it, then we start to see the differences in prices and things like that. And then it was down to the consumer. They yeah. had to decide. They had to decide yeah. what, but 
I tried to explain to some of them. I was like, they're at a scale, you know, it's like Amazon. Mm. Yeah, they can't just focus on one area and say we're going to give the best service we possibly mm. can here. Amazon can't do what they do today without subcontracting yeah. out to other companies yeah, to yeah. help them. They just couldn't do it. And that is how I've sort of explained it to people. And I sort of said, you know, I work for a company, everyone was employed, but we don't go any further than an hour. Mm. And that was it. Yeah. That was, we couldn't go any further. And people would try, they would say, come, we've got a holiday home down here, it's two yeah, hours yeah. away, we'll put you up for the night. And yeah. it, if, for us, it was never... The economy of scale doesn't work. No, it yeah, just yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. And we said, if there's a service call, we need to get to it. But I sort of apply it to, similar to EDF really, but British Gas. And mm. I've talked about it before, that I feel more comfortable getting in um, a boiler service from British Gas. So if there's a problem on a Christmas day or something, yeah. I can call someone out, there's someone on call. Something about mm. being a national company, I don't feel so bad for that yeah. engineer that's being paid his overtime or her overtime for, for that day. Yeah. But the local, uh, you know, boiler heating engineer, the, you know, I'm going to feel terrible bringing him out on a Christmas day just to look at the boiler. He's going to charge you. And he's going to yeah, charge you. Yeah, he's going to charge you. He's going to be enjoy. okay, but I'd, it'd be yeah. more, you know, even if he was on a plan, you know, where we it was covered monthly, I'd still feel guilty about ruining yeah. their Christmas mm-hmm. as opposed to they'll bring someone in from a national company. So, and you sort of, I think the other reason consumers got really into national companies is, and, and because you sort of say, not so much Everest, but some of the others out there, they've had bad experiences. I sort of, I couldn't even work out why they were even invited into the home mm-hmm. to quote anyway. And I think a lot of it comes down to brand name, and the fact that they, you know, there's multiple opportunities for someone else to come out. I, I don't know if it's, you know, it's just the oh, branding, they, and like the McDonald's effect. Mm. Yeah, you know, they, they go there, they should get some sort of consistency rather than if you go to sort of a boutique restaurant, McDonald's, you know mm. what you're getting, you know, it should be the same standard. And I think that's what yeah. applies. You know, you could go to a nice small restaurant, brilliant food, but if the, that waiter or waitress is off that day that mm. made that restaurant, yeah. you've got a terrible experience. Yeah, yeah. And, I, so it's a bit how you flip your burgers, isn't it? So you yeah. know, if, you, if you make McDonald's, you flip your burgers. They're consistent. Don't matter where you go in the world, they fairly much taste the same. They look the same. You know the cost base is going to be about the same. If you bit into it, it didn't taste right. You take it back to the account, they change it, they don't ask any questions. Yeah. Simple as. The marketing comes on TV, it triggers, it goes. The the, the national double glazing companies, you know, Everest, Anglian, you know, I've worked at Anglian for about nine months as well. Oh, here we go. Yeah. So yeah. very similar business. Yep. And, but but both of their businesses, you know, back in the day, their quality was really good. You know, it's touch above. Their marketing was really good. Actually, their customer service was really good. There was a lot good about these companies. So I think coming back to your point, the benchmark of, okay, so we're going to get Everest, Anglian, a couple of locals in. The further you go back, that didn't happen because the locals weren't competing. It was Everest or Anglin. Mm. You made your choice and they competed. Then the local companies come in. And it's actually, do, do, do we trust them? Have they got the stability? And then I think, you know, some of the bigger companies started going under and reinventing themselves different names. So it's okay. Local companies start winning and then local marketing start coming and then it's support the local community. So the way a lot of your nationals are going, it's not just there's a lot of nationals out there. Some of the bigger nationals now concentrate on local marketing. You know, they've, they've got local showrooms and they give a local service. And obviously that's gone from, we don't want to be in your house. We don't want to put you under that pressure. Let's do an online quote, come to the showroom. And it genuinely has just completely changed. So I think it's gone full circle, mm. but I think there was trust in nationals and the, the power of marketing. They spend so much on marketing. If you think yeah. about it, the adverts compared to anyone else, how on earth, you know, every, everyone remembers the Everest adverts. Yeah. 
everyone remembers the boy behind the car adverts. You, there's just some that just stick. At, there's some certain McDonald's adverts I'm sure I remember. Yeah. You know, there's tunes you remember, and 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 they were them. Their marketing people were fairly cool, and most of their marketing people were salespeople as well. Mm. So, yeah, which is important because mm. you need marketers that can sell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and it sells to, marketing exactly. And in glove, right? Yeah, yeah. So. so where did Anglian come into this? So you was at Everest for how many years? I was at Everest for five and a bit years. Right. Um, Anglian, <sighs> incestuous industry, isn't it? The, the, day I, the day I walked out of the door from Everest, and several of us walked out of this door at the same time. Probably not by choice, you know, it was just your time's come. New buyer or whatever it was, new CEO. So walked out. Mm, I think I got about sort of. 200 yards down the road and got a phone call from Anglia. <laughs> yeah. Listen uh, to that. Are you interested? You know, actually, quite a loyal person. I'm a three-month contract, you know, whatever. But but long story short, but the person who contacted me is still quite a good friend. He's very genuine. He's been in that business a long time. And he's, he was truthful that I've got this. We need to do this. Are you interested? And I'm like, you know, goes against all my beliefs coming to work for you you know after being Everest you know this kind of thing it's like yeah, get over yourself Wayne <laughs> do you want to come in over you know it's like yeah okay A I need a job and B that's, that sounds like a good proposition and you know I went and worked there for just under a year you know we, we, we never fell out I, I ended up leaving because we went by any car come and poach me and it was you know uh, an offer of yeah probably turned out to be an offer of a lifetime so well you know i really enjoyed working at anglian there was a you know i learned that actually they were a great bunch of people as well that good quality product that's the the, the the history was just very similar to everest you, you know that they, they had some good systems so everything you believed about the competition to be bad actually it weren't there's just two very good companies you know so um yeah i got approached to go to we buy any car um, that journey started there. So, you know, from doors and windows, plastic, effectively. There's no aluminium where there was. Very little involved in those days. It was, you know, into into the car game. So, We Buy Any Car, that, was that sort of at the start of its journey that they, they come and approach you? Um, no, they, they were quite, they, they were on their journey, uh, ready to go into their second part of the journey i guess so owned by british car auctions but still i didn't realize that yeah so owned by bca still very independent the original founders the two brothers who who set them up who were part of another big business were you know tied in completely a lot of the original people there you know bca are very clever the the business was nothing without them you know the innovators they were the idea they would have set up, they would need original money, etc. So when when I went to that business, I met all the founders, you know, and obviously subsequently dealt with them on a regular basis. Uh, but a very fast moving, know what they're looking for, know the sort of person they're looking for. Um and yeah, that's that that there was one phone call which swerved swerved the career path again. Wow. So what position did you go in at with We Buy? As head of retail and operations. Wow. So, oh yeah, straight straight in, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, it was good, but you know what's really important is, oh, I, I never forget. You know, you got you got your roots where you start from. 
and, and, you, and you work your way up and then you go down a bit and then you go a bit sideways, whatever, whatever life throws at you. However, it was the Everest Anglian, whatever that senior management part of those businesses, which attracted them to me because they went out to the market. So they are headhunters and said, we need somebody with this kind of attitude mm. who's tough enough because they put three or four people in and it's quite fast moving business and it needs results daily results who's resilient to to that kind of thing so they went out to a few different industries and typically double glazing was was on there at a senior management level so what what did sort of that job entail then what did you what did a day look like if we buy any car started really early <laughs> it's retail so it's seven days a week you know it, it doesn't particularly stop it it's their, their, their organization is is web-based it's digital it's electronic yeah. so their it department is by far the biggest department in 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 their whole of the setup you know 30 people in it and then 30 people for the rest of the business so you know that 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 was how it was i had a um, an area turnover about 300 million wow so we you know it was based regional managers a lot of independent buyers. So those employed, those buyers, they worked in the pods that you probably see yep, in seen the car parks. Pods, yeah. They worked out of hotels. They worked in various different places. And there was, I think when I started, there was four of us heads of retail split down. So we were about 300 million each. That subsequently changed as we went through and there's fewer of us. And they, they were on a growth trajectory. This is where we are. This is where we want to go. And this is how we're going to get there. You know, and, and let's talk about the journey and the targets were very steep. But I guess realistic. And you got looked after extremely well. You know, so it's a it was fast moving. The, the business was monitored hourly. So it wasn't, you know, I'd come from business where at the end of the week you, you cashed up. When I first started, it was probably end of the week and then we got to daily and then it was almost hourly what conversions are doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... The business, I suppose we just see it from a consumer point of view. Mm. You're selling a car, but obviously yeah. you're then selling that car on. Yeah. So that 300 million, that is from the sale of, so you get a pot to work with to buy cars. Yeah, the, the pot's endless. You know, so, so, you know, the business, obviously it's a cash-hungry business, but it doesn't matter if you're coming in with a, £250,000 E-type or you're coming in with a £200 or 50 quid banger, that that buyer, okay, there's levels of authorization and buying, he can buy as many of those as he wants in a day or her, as many as she wants in a day. You know, you, you book an appointment that starts at the top of the funnel, you book an appointment online, it knocks down, you get your valuation, you then book your appointment, you then turn up, appointment's confirmed, you get an arrivals rate versus a conversion, you then get down to geographical locations, you get down to postcode sectors, you get down to demographics, you get down to just you know, the detail, the, the granularity, of, and it becomes a science. Then it becomes an algorithm because you've got hundreds of thousands of people using the website every day, but not just Joe Public. It's become an industry standard for Ford, BMW, Mercedes, Porsche. They want to price a car now. Gone are the days they pick up the Parker's Guide, they get on We Buy Any Car because they because they're owned by the auction house, the biggest one in the UK, they set the prices. Hmm. So they were really clever. You know, they didn't care how many people, more people use it, the better, because you've got two cars identical. This one's got a little scratch down the right-hand wing, and this one's got a bruised alloy. They had that data. So they, they, they knew 
where the market was. So it's an extremely sophisticated, clever machine. And, and with that sophistication, you can then buy well. You can buy what you need to buy and not buy what you don't want to buy. Yeah. You know, you can push harder on some things than others. But the rule was you'd buy anything. If the checks worked out, you, you know, you'd buy anything. So. so did you ever have to run a pod or do that kind of side of things? I always made sure I did. Yeah, yeah. So part. same principle, like oh, you're yeah. knocking, you got in there, you did yeah. it. So it was, we, I used to run something with my regional managers, win a regional manager for a day, and win head of retail for a day every month. So you know, the, the, whatever the KPI would be, it could be the top buyer numbers of cars, it could be value, it could be best improved. Whatever we put in, you got us for a day. And we would buy, we would do all the donkey work for you, we'd appraise, we'd you know, show you human and you can do it. You'd take him breakfast, you'd buy him lunch, and you'd drive him home at the end of the night. So that was, and that was quite, a, the, the, you know, cost-wise, compared to some of the things we used to do, is minimal, but it used to raise the most competition, you know, because they all wanted you for the day, because they was going to work you hard. But you always constantly, the rule of we buy any car is doesn't, you don't sit behind your desk. Your job involves seeing people all day, every day. If you're going to work, you go and work in a pod. Next to a buyer. With live customers, yeah, you know, okay, so we had to have our time where, you know, we, we wasn't, but fairly much all my regional managers five days a week, well, you know, that, that status in Sundays, depending on what their shifts were, had to be important. I had to see like three or four buyers a day, you know, we were very hands-on business. Wow. And then, so before pods, you, you say hotels as well, didn't you? Yeah, think so, that? yeah, that's Central. hotels. So is, is, where can we trade? Right, we need this area. What's the cost? You know, the, what, what works out? And a hotel's great trials because they generally got a conference room. They'll generally do a dedicated day, and you can try it out. Yeah, this area works fantastic. Let's invest some money in a building or whatever it might mm. be, you know? As you imagine, some of the areas in London are extremely expensive. Yeah. So dipping your toe in the water is a good idea. And then, and then you get your science, you get your demographics, you get your acorns, you get your chimney breasts, you get your spends, and, and, and it's, it's easy to repeat the model then. Yeah. So, And then because there's, there's one near us um, in Cheltenham and I pass it and it, things that go through my head is how much does it cost to rent that space mm-hmm. from the car park and things like that yeah. but you have to take that into consideration and then obviously building the pods as well obviously you have to have those made oh yeah I mean delivered. it's yeah, the, the, yeah it's, it's like most businesses I think it's it's, it's very much it's, it's not really run by sales it's not run by anything apart from finance mm. you know the most important person in that business is the FD that's it, you know. But that's most businesses, isn't it? Yeah. You, you, you work around them, you know. If you, if you if your FD's no good, your business is no good. Effectively, it goes out of control, and and they are a classic example of it. And why not? You know, they're, they're, they're all their heads, their senior heads, are from an accountancy background. Generally, yeah. So, yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. I'm also now thinking, what was the most expensive car you ever <laughs> bought? I think as £220,000 um, Phantom Rolls Royce out of Guildford. Um, <laughs> coupe. Yeah, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But a hundred grand car would be an average day, a Lambo. A you get them coming in? Oh, constantly, constantly. In some branches, more than others. And then, you know, you get your brush buckets will come to the end of their life and it's easy to take them there and scrap them. Yeah, you you know it's that kind of thing. So there's a whole spectrum, of, a whole spectrum of cars. 
Yeah, I had a friend once who scrapped his car, £130, uh, ended up spending it on a pair of boots. Yeah, well, there you go. It's amazing, isn't <laughs> it? Yeah. Yeah, oh. He swapped his car for boots. Yeah. Walking, walking down the road, just, rather than driving down the road, yeah. yeah. Exactly. But it's, yeah, but he could have got 50 quid, I suppose, also. Now. But 100 grand, I suppose, it's a quick way to get cash, isn't it? Yeah. And if they need it, they need it. They haven't got time to, to shop around and get the best price. They mm. just... It's, and is that what the business was built on? The, the yeah, yeah that, it's convenience. It's convenience. It's, it's quick. You get a price. Okay, so you don't always get the price that you quoted, but actually you have to be realistic in yeah. the market. No one's ever forced that, you know... Uh, and people put their cars up for sale private in different places. Six weeks later, they often come back to the business and just say, oh, you're right. Yeah. I'll take a couple of grand less because I can move on. Yes. I'm buying a new car. I've got cash in my pocket. I'm not sure it works the same these days with what we're going through at the moment. But if I've got cash in my pocket, I can go and park. It's a lot easier. You, you know, there, yeah. there, there, there was a lot of honesty and stories. It is that this is the price. This is what we do. This is how we do it. But if you want your money in 20 minutes, that's absolutely fine. You know? Was, that, was it that quick? Mm, for, for some, yeah, some wow. people, it was that quick. So, you know, it's, it's, it, was, it was just a, it was a good turnkey operation. Hmm. No, I I was interested with the especially the Lambos. I, I, I had a customer and he, he sells them, but he mm. takes them on for people. He has to store them. He was yeah, he was, yeah. Uh, we put some windows in for him because he's building up the showroom and he had a car lift so he could take the right, cars okay. upstairs. So he's yeah, making yeah. it look the part. Yeah. So, but that was what it was all about. And uh, yeah, exactly. And mm. he was obviously hanging on to them a bit longer because mm. he was going to get the, the, the most he possibly could because mm. that was his money. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's all time and storage and things like yeah. that. So, whereas, completely different care. But I never realised they were owned by the auctions. We had mm. an auction in Tewkesbury mm-hmm. that uh, used to flood a lot as well. So well, I think okay. they ended up yeah. giving it up. I think the space, is, the space is still there. I think it's sort of all shut down, but they it got used for storage and all sorts. But yeah. because it used to get flooded all the time, I think it wasn't one of their favourite places. It did cost them a bit in 2007 when it all went under. So I don't think there was that many valuable cars. But, uh, yeah, and then a friend of mine, he always used to just go to the car auctions and just be fascinated by what would sell and make it, you know, he, he sort of got, because it was quite early in the morning they used to start, didn't they? And Yeah, I mean, they run sales all day. Yeah. Know, they, they run all day, they do evening sales. You know, it's, like, it's like horse racing. <laughs> evening, right? just go and buy a car. And, 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 it, and it, you had the traders there, but I think, you know, again, the internet, the world's a smaller place. Start getting private individuals there. And then obviously it raises the game because you've got some traders bidding against retail money. Mm. And it changes the state yes. through COVID. You know, as would we buy any car through COVID? Um, we come out the other side and retail full stop and the way the cars were sold completely different. So you go to an auction, normally a hall would be full, it'd be an atmosphere, it'd be a buzz. Well, actually you've got four people in the hall and everyone's online mm. bidding online that'd be unheard of no, no, no one you know you, you got the car trader who's been in the business 40 years who's been to an auction every day of his life and all of a sudden he's online which button do I press to, to buy you, you know it's, yeah. it, it changed completely changed yeah, the industry's quite old a bit like the double glazing industry yeah you know with new talent coming through <sighs> really yeah the car market's a bit more sexy you know you get the latest cars come out you get the latest brand whatever it is it might attract Younger, but it's still the same circuit. I like yeah. double glazing, the same people who rock round effectively from Fulton Nissan to Mercedes to Porsche, maybe. You know, and you know, once they hit Porsche, they're three years and they start their own business. Yeah. So it's, it's very similar, you know, a lot of parallels mm. from, 
from that point of view. Yeah. And the, and the, and the buying of cars, it's really selling in reverse. You know, we'll give you 10 grand for your car. You come in, we'll buy with you. We'll give you eight grand. It, buyers, I, I always used to use terminology, you used to sell him, but they weren't, they was buying. You know, it was absolutely no different. So if, you have, if you're a good salesperson, a good nature, honest nature, you'd make a good buyer. That, that was it. But did you also get caught with, you know, they'd sell it, you have a look around, because you can't sort of take it up the road, can you, and sort of test it, listen to it, and sort of say, oh, there is, oh, there's a knock in there. You know, mm. did you get caught the same as the auction would? You know, yeah, you drop I mean, there was, a, there was a number of tests that every, if you, if you go into a car dealership, they'll test drive, et cetera, but there's a lot of online car buying services. And actually, you know, for the economy of scale, you can't test drive them, you can't train your people, you can't insure them. It just isn't practical. So within your costs, you get an algorithm of out of, I don't know, 20 cars, for example, five are going to lose money on, 15 we're going to make, and it's because of X, Y, Z. You know, but it's, it's very, the inspection process is very regimented. It's very trained. It's But it's still down to human error. It's still down to... If you forget one of your checks, it can be costly, but you have to build it into your cost, you know, and, and that's where I think smaller people try to enter the market because the market's huge, you know, yeah. it's absolutely huge. There's so much secondhand car market that isn't done online, or sorry, isn't, sort of, cars aren't bought online, but the smaller companies, if they had like three or four bad eggs, you know, buyers or something like that, they could go under, where when you're on a scale of we buy any car, it becomes part of the economy of scale. Yeah. So... Yeah, that makes sense. Because mm. you sort of picture, yeah, like it is. I was looking at the more the small scale that you know they buy a car and then it needs a new gearbox. And they, you know, unless they're mechanics, that's going to cost them quite a bit. Yeah, you see a lot of people leave that industry. Buyers maybe they built up some contacts, they built up a knowledge, they know their way around the car, and what they think is right. Okay, I'm going to start a dealership. So I've got a bit of money, and I've started four or five cars. I'm going to retail them, whatever. And actually, they buy the four or five cars and one car typically is not going to be what they think they bought. Mm. That's them done. That's that's all the profit and all the other cars done. And you see that so much. Mm. Yeah. Because so, it, it, it's, it's not, if it's that easy, everyone would do it, right? Yes. And lots of people have rep, tried to replicate and very few have made it. So, yeah. And it, when it happens in, in fenestration as well, when some people say, you know, oh, yeah, I'll put that door in for you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. No, don't pay that. And then three, three months later, there's a problem with it. Oh, yeah. That's, I've got to come back now. That's my Saturday. This is the day. And that's it. What they don't realise is they're tied in for life, mm. which is what you get. You know, they try and sell a car, try and flip it. They're bringing it back to you if it's not working. Yeah. yeah it doesn't matter. They're talking about yeah, you yeah. on the internet now. Yeah. You know, the world's a small place. Gone. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's fenestration. I haven't been in, I've only been here for six months. Yeah, aluminium. I don't know who it was. It's relatively new to me as I'm learning every day. But what I do see is competition of all shapes and sizes. You know, competition is healthy. Without it, we're nothing. Yeah. But, you know, what, what I'm learning is actually the, where are you have been in it for a long haul? Make mistakes. We still make mistakes, but you try and learn by them as well. A lot of people just enter in aluminium, and it, it might sound easy. It's a profile. It's extrusion. It's a system. Oh, my life, what goes into that? If you miss one element of it out or do one element of it not particularly well, you've got problems for the whole lifetime of that system. So it's just exactly the same. It's exactly the same principles. You know, it's, it's what goes behind it. It's the brains go behind it. It's the money that goes behind it. It's the technology that goes behind it. And it, it just goes on. And I guess you can go back to Everest, We Buy Any Car. They've, they've all got that pedigree. 
mm. you know? And then it's about how to run. And a lot of marketing money. A lot of marketing money. A lot of marketing. I can only imagine. imagine. What... Yeah. Yeah. So while on that subject, how how did that the change come then? And what, what made you go from We Buy Any Car to our UK? So uh, We Buy Any Car, uh, three or four months after lockdown, I was made redundant, which which was a shame, you know. And uh, I had uh, two or three months of not doing a lot and a, a smaller car buying business approached me and said, would you be, would you be interested in coming and looking at what we do? So at uh, this time I was thinking, I'm just going to go back into bigger national, pick up where I left off, you know, get on the, get on this gravy train, this journey again, because I was really quite enjoying it and fairly successful at it, you know, and, and learned a lot. And once you've been with a company like We Buy Any Car, quite a lot of companies want you, but your clause under contract, et cetera. So anyway, I found a niche in a smaller company, had one branch, I said, look, what can we do with it? And I started learning the trade then. So we buy any car, you're at quite a high level. You don't particularly get involved in the auction, the trade, possibly the dirt behind mm. behind what really goes on. And this was, you know, somebody, private owner, done particularly well for himself, who had the vision of, you know, the we buy any car model years and years ago and kept trying it, kept trying it. And he just needed something kicking off. So it wasn't competing. We agreed it wasn't competing. It was a, 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 a it was going out to people's houses and buying, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, so we, we we went on this journey, and actually, I found him a really interesting person, and lots of different businesses. I wasn't able to work anywhere really for a year anyway. Uh, we just went on this journey, and it, it was really really interesting until we got to the point where he had four branches, had a few buyers, achieved roughly what he wanted to do. I had a great journey, and it was like, yo, know, I was like that got another three months, got another two months, got another. And we just kind of ended when this opportunity came up. It was just right for us. Right. Yeah. So, so you have good friends and it's doing good. And it's just one of those, um, it's one of those things. Time was good. The relationship was good. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I took a big backseat on finances and lots of things, but the experience was, I, I, I was ready for the, the next big car job because I just learned the trade as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Buying cars. I've been buying cars for him. I've been washing cars. I've been driving cars. I'd, you, you know, it gone through the whole turnkey. And sometimes I just sit and think, this time last year, what on earth am I doing? <laughs> what, what, yeah, what am I doing? My sleeves are wet. I've, I've got grease all over my trousers again. I, you, 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 but it, it, it was part of it. You know, it was, it was part of the attraction, I guess. Mm. And, you know, and, and, those kind of jobs anyway, you know, we buy, they don't leap at you every day. You've got to be realistic. Yeah. Yeah. As much as you think they do, when you're not in the game, they don't. And actually the couple did leap at me. I weren't interested because I was having quite a good time. Yeah. It's a bit of downtime if you like. So yeah. Right. So is there a chance then if we buy any kind that come along, you'd still be at Anglian now? No. No. Um, and if you if the redundancy hadn't come, would you still be at We Buy Any Car? Yeah. You mm. think you'd be? Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's, it's a bit like old UK, really. I mean, you know, the comparisons, uh, there's lots of similar comparisons. The business itself is a good business. It's enjoyable. It's challenging. It's not as fast-paced, but it's got other uh, parts of it that 
that make up for the fast pace. Yeah. You know, there's design, there's, there's all sorts of stuff going on. So, it, you know, if the, if the car business come back to me now and said, hey, do you want to jump up? I'll be no. I've, I've crossed the line. I'm in I'm yeah. somewhere where I'm comfortable. I'm enjoying, et cetera. So it, it's a similar sort of thing, you know, either or. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It so so when, sense. when I come here, there's a choice between this and back into more of what I was used to in the car industry because I just got to a period where I could stick my neck out and say, hey, I'm available again. And this actually is more attractive. Mm. So you joined and you're in aluminium now. So Aluminium, yeah. yeah. Uh, Everest days, Anglin days, they weren't they weren't hot on aluminium then, were they? No. Uh, no a bit of secondary glazing maybe yeah, with Everest? Yeah, so they, well, they started with the original secondary. Um, and then it was the aluminium, as we know. Aluminium on a wooden frame. Yeah. And I think, I, I, I don't know really, to, I couldn't really comment on what, what the history is. They offer aluminium systems now mm. because you have to. Yeah. But I think it's probably because the, the demand is there yeah. for it. But but when, you know, I was in those businesses, aluminium was, obviously, it was smaller anyway. You know, yeah. aluminium's really come on in the last little while. Yeah. So you're in the right place. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the right place, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> So how, uh, what's your sort of take on how things are changing, coming back to the industry as such, in a different environment? It's, um, it's good to see the other side of the coins. I've always been B2C, so I've dealt with the end customer, understand the problems and frustrations, and being a retailer, which effectively we buy in the cars a retailer as well. Yeah. So I've been in retail for a long time. Now seeing the B2B side of the business, but understanding further up the value chain is quite interesting. And that's what I probably bring to the job where I lack a bit of B2B. I understand a bit further up the value chain. So looking at the industry, how it's changed, I don't think it's changed enough. I'm surprised it hasn't changed more. You know, I, I think uh, consumers changed. Yes. And that's forced the industry to change. I think your nationals are doing, most of them are doing a much more professional job. Obviously competing with the local companies, which are not fearful anymore. A local company, you can review them. Yeah. You're a trust pilot. But any you, you, tr- trust a trader, whatever it is. So lo- local companies in competition, and I think COVID, social media, the original customers, the richer customers, the no mortgage customers, etc., were forced to get online, start using Zoom, etc. So all of a sudden, actually, if I'm looking for a set of windows. May- maybe I look a bit further afield than actually just window companies. Maybe I'll go to a fabricator because I want to get my price right down. I'm going to go to grassroots. I'm going to investigate what systems they've got, what their U-values are, what colours they do, how long they've been in business, because you've got all this bloody time on your hands. You, yeah. you know. Yeah, they and So I, I think, I mean, this is just my interpretation of it. I think coming out the other side of COVID, the industry changed whilst we was in COVID, mm. come out the other side, and all of a sudden you've got, I certainly talk to our fabricators, and like, it's changed. We, we have people come through our door, like Joe Public, and it's not what we do. And it's like, well, actually, the reason they're coming through your door is because COVID's just changed the way we look and buy everything. It's changed the age group. It's changed the demographic. It, it's just changed everything. So come, answering your question, though, come, coming back, I, I think the consumer has changed what goes on in the retail business completely. I'm still learning the B2B business. You know, but that is oh, it's strange as well. Yeah. It's, it's still very... It's amazing. It's still very old school, and it's it's in its way of going to market. It's marketing, etc. But it's got a lot of clever people behind it. So you know, there there's people who you know, a lot of fabricators. They started as installers, and they've made good, and they've made good. 
and they made good, but they haven't been lucky. They're entrepreneurial. Mm. Yeah, entrepreneurial. Definitely, and, you know, yeah. some have got on board with social media, most actually. And it's to what level you want to go and take your business. But, you know, you can be an entrepreneur, but you don't specialize in digital marketing. I don't specialize in digital marketing. I come from a digital marketing company. But Antonia understands digital marketing. That's what you have people around you for. So yeah. I, think, I think we'll see a lot of change through this next sort of recession. And I think it will be driven through social media. Yeah. I have I, to agree. I think it will. Yeah. It, it's like you say, our industry, it, it, yeah, yeah, it's still catching up, but it's the consumers for that change. And then from a B2B point of view as well, mm. I've, I've been in a similar situation. I used to deal B2C and now I'm B2B. And do you know if you got your weekends back? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, I was talking to someone earlier actually, and they're like, how's it going? I'm like, yes, it's great. And, you know, as a, as a as a director of a business that we're growing and, and particularly having sales in your title, you know, get up on a Monday morning, get home on a Friday. It's, it's that kind of job, especially at the moment. But when I do get home on a Friday, my phone don't ring on a Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Seriously. I used to get up on a Saturday. I'm ready with my figures. I'm ready for my phone. To, uh, and it took me a month just not to pick my phone up every two seconds. And, and then I'm starting to text people on a Saturday, like my, my salespeople. And I'm thinking, Freaking ignore it, but it took a week or so for a penny to drop. I'm like, this ain't good service. Say one of your customers wants you on Saturday. They don't work on a Saturday. Okay, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it's well, it's not to say a lot of people you don't get the communication on the Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, you know, if you want to work, you can obviously. And it's, 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 it's look, let's face it, it's a waste of time. I was doing it, and you know, don't get me wrong, production staff here, you know, they they, they work weekends, we need them working weekends, so we do work a weekend, but I'm used to being on the other side of, you know, in, in the office, in the sales teams, etc. from our retail is a seven day a week, isn't it? Plus, the door's I, always open. I could imagine we buy any car, um, it's probably weekends are busier than the, during the week. Yeah, they? yeah, to, yeah. Because Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you that's know, when everyone's finished. Yeah, I, I, I think that's changed around there actually though. I, th- I think it's evened out for more through the week again because of COVID. Working from home. Working from home. Just you can pop car. it out. Just sell the car. 20 minutes, sell my car. It's done. You know, <laughs> doing my lunch break, that kind of thing. So, you know, I don't know, but I would guess their busier times now are 12 to 1, uh, Monday to Friday. I am purely guessing at that, but I would think so. Weekend retail is not what weekend retail used to be. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's changed a lot. So, Al UK, then tell us about the company. How many How many staff have you got here? So we have uh, in total around about 140. I'm probably going to get corrected by Antonia. I'll do a presentation now. But we're, we're 140 to 160 LUK. So that's sales staff, production staff in, in its entirety. Right. And it's been going, do you say 40? Uh, LUK dates back. Yeah, something we've got this big snake of its history. LUK has, has developed from three different companies. Uh, but yeah, we, we go back four years. So right. it's, it's got a history and actually some of our customers, as with some customers, um, the other week and, you know, they're, they're being dealing with since the founder bought them a window and said, what do you think? And they took it and they're sole our UK customers still. And it's anyone else's, it's just our UK and they've built a, an amazing business on it. And I guess we've built, an amazing business 
on them. Yeah. But but there, there's a lot of tradition. There's a lot of loyalty, and you know there, there's a lot of heritage to the business. <clears throat> so although it's changed names, it's developed as it's changed names. Hasn't been announced receivership. It hasn't. You, you know, it's yeah. It, it just it's, goes it's, through it's that consistent yeah. brand. Yeah. You know exactly. And then obviously the LUK branding, which obviously we're part of the global group. LUK has got a really solid name in the market. It's privately owned, which is quite rare. So it has a nice feel to it. Hmm. You know, I guess there's security in that for our customers. You know, what happens if you wear us floods? Well, we've got another centre around the world. Practically, it doesn't work like that, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's probably more than you can say for most warehouses. Yeah. And as you were saying, I'm sort of thinking aluminium side of things. With the recession, everyone knows is, is sort of on the way or they're mm. here. The time for aluminium... It's always been new PVC, and it's it's now that you know that there's been some companies with aluminium all this time. You've survived. You've carried on going. So, is this now your time? I, I think so. I think that we, we all know the economy is going to get tough. You know, we, we all, if we're not feeling the pinch, we're going to feel the pinch, and we're going to see it in consumer spending habits, and you know, patterns going to change. But aluminium is still an aspirational product. Really, hmm. is far more expensive than plastic, but possibly the pinch of where the customers who buy aluminium for their properties probably won't be as affected as possibly, you know, the plastic buyers. Don't mean that well-off people don't buy both. But what I'm saying is it's more of an aspirational buy. It always has been. Yeah. But now it's becoming more popular as a mainstream Me Too product because it's recyclable. As I said, there's an endless supply. You know, it's, it's, it's about... Let's face it, everything is about the planet now. Yep. So, so I think morals are coming into it, sustainability, practicality, and what it does, it does so much more now as well. Hmm. You know, you know. so yeah. I, I think, I, I don't know, I wish I could predict, but I think for the long term, plastic will drop the very word of it, plastic. No one likes using it, do they? No. You know, we're going to have to come up with a creative word, but yeah, I think we'll see aluminium lift plastic drop, but the growth pattern, I guess, depends very much down to price. Yeah, there's a race to the bottom with plastic at the moment. Mm. Yeah. It's already started. Literally, it's, it's a race to the bottom. And if you're on that race, which is probably hard not to be or not be tempted, and who can blame anyone at the moment, once you hit the bottom, you hit the bottom. Mm. You know, we, we our the, the bulk of our customers, we, we're a quality brand. We have that heritage. We have customers who have been on Genevieve's for a long time doesn't mean that they don't buy anywhere else some don't some do but they they, they trust the brand and generally they don't go on that race to the bottom because they attach quality not ridiculous prices but quality and actually if someone wants to do it for that that's fine because we don't sell that brand this brand for you know yes so yeah. so and we, we don't as a business which is really interesting i found it quite interesting when i come in because coming from my industry it's like go 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 get what you can you know as in we, we need more customers. We need more customers. We're, we're really strategic about it. We've got a customer in this postcode. We don't set another one up next to them. No. In fact, we don't set another We do a lot of investigating before we do that. And, and actually, it took me a few months to get my head around this, and I finally got my head around it with the map of the UK and some little pins on it, you know, that actually there's a lot of loyalty there. It goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, no, definitely. And, and, and there's an easy way to grow. You just go and attack the market. That's great. We've got a brand got great product it's not for everyone but it'll be for a lot of people but actually what do you do to your existing customers 
So you you got to grow sensibly, and I guess sustainably for us. Yeah, yeah. And well, like you say, aluminium does cost more than new PVC. That mm. you know, it's it's more to buy the it's profile, everything. Product, it's right. an expensive product, but. I've talked to fabrication companies and of the two, a lot of them will favor the aluminium in terms of the machinery is cheaper to start with. Because a lot, yeah, a lot of it's mechanical, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. It, you know, if we're going to start fabrication business, aluminium is very mm. appealing, should we say. Mm. Whereas, you know, getting the tooling and everything for PVC and welding everything, it's... Um, and I guess, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, I'm really not a techie. I'm becoming more technical because our business... It's reasonably technical, you know. But what more can you do? UPVC, you know, you you can. It's got every color. It spans and it contracts, so you're a bit limited. But but it, you can put as many chambers you want. You can put them in. You can take them out. You can do whatever. But but what what more can you do with it? Mm. You know how how sexy can it look? It doesn't matter what you do. It's it's all based on it. A lot of it ain't going to recycle. You know, it's, yeah, it's just, it just is, I guess, I, I bet that the average consumer, who buys, go, swaps from plastic to aluminium, I bet they know more about aluminium, its recyclability, et cetera, than I do. I, I bet they go into every facet of it. And it, so that, that's something else on my list, to learn absolutely everything about how we recycle, what we recycle, what we can. You know, that kind of yeah. thing. But the consumer now, they're, they're advanced. Yeah. You know? I remember consumers used to walk into our showroom and they go with sight lines. What's got the slimmest sight lines? Mm. That's the aluminium. That's UBBC. Yeah. U values would come into it, but, the, you know, yep. most of the time, the conversations that I would have is, can't afford the aluminium. We're going to have to go for the grey UPVC. And it had to be the grey or the black. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, yeah. But there was definitely scenarios where we would always sell it in between mm. stone mullions. We had to put aluminium in. Yeah. Didn't always work with UPVC. Some people have tried. I don't always agree with it, especially if they're very, very short, small windows. Mm. But people, they did it. You know, it really comes down to their budget and what yeah. they wanted to spend and how long they were going to be in that home. Yeah. Because if it wasn't a forever home, they weren't going to spend as much. So yeah. a lot of things come into it. But it sounds like you're in the right place. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's it's definitely growing, albeit it might be under some kind of sort of slightly subdued because of what the marketplace is doing. But, you know, we're seeing our fabricators doing reasonably well. We're seeing plastic slow down. And I think you've seen it in the numbers from the big nationals as well. And aluminium isn't suffering as much. No. But, you know, it's, it's nowhere near its peak, obviously. Yeah. No, there's still plenty more there. You know, if you, if you go cast your weight day back to uh, the original aluminium, it, it was an aluminium colour with a wooden box around the outside. Very... It wasn't firmly efficient. Even you know when it's single glazed, it's even worse. But when it's double glazed, you know compared to PVCU. But you're right. The slim sight lines, the sexy look of it, the minimalist, the modern look. But as aluminiums evolved and the system houses evolved, you've got traditional looks. You've got modern looks. Uh, thermal efficiencies have got much much better. It's just become a desirable product. It's aspirational. Um, you, you know the the customer generally, although prices have come down a lot, customer generally that will buy aluminium, I wouldn't exactly say mortgage-free, but probably are in the market more disposable income, um, like some of the higher plastics. And also the colours as well, Richard, you know, there isn't a colour that you can't get in aluminium now. In fact, 
you know, colours in aluminium weight foils on plastic. That's for sure. You can have shades, you can have textures, you can have glosses, you can have absolutely anything. And this day and age, you know, with, with uh, sustainable products, uh, green product, recyclable products, you can't be aluminium uh, as a metal or as a, as a you know, to, to, to be more recyclable. So I think there's a, there's a lot of things coming into play which we get educated through the media with that makes it more desirable as time goes on. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, have you got your own paint spraying facility? Yep. Isn't it? Is it the vertical paint. one? Yep. So we've got we've got a vertical paint line, which we can, if I'm correct, 18 tons through it every single day. Um, wow. and probably probably squeeze a little bit more at night. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a, it's a great facility. It sits within our warehouse, um, and yeah, they're, they're, there's not a lot of them around. We've, as our UK, we've got five of those facilities throughout the, um, the, the you know the our UK portfolio, world portfolio. Right. I was going to say, how how many locations does Hal UK have? We have ten locations. Oh, wow. I'll try and name them all. If I was going to get sweet or something, name them all. <laughs> beer. Uh, but you know, we've got we've got Dubai, China, India, Belgium, Italy, France, Netherlands, UK. I've missed a few. Uh, but but you know so we're, we're we're well spread out, and each of those countries, you know, although they're our UKs, they've they've got their own environmental regulations and issues to to, to contend with. Yeah. So you know, yeah, you know, some some countries can have some beautiful luxury slim wrap rounds with hardly any frame because they don't have such high UV values to um, contend with. So the, the the business is not always transferable. You know, we work a lot with Italy, we work a lot with France, but. There's always, you know, tweaks and uh, engineering needs to be done. That not all, not all products is cross-functional. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. But you know, you can see there, just sort of looking from the outside, that the investments there. You know, you're keeping things, especially with the, the you know, having your own in-house paint spraying facility, just means you've, you're very agile when it comes to providing customers what they want. Yeah, I, we, 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 you know, we are, you know, we, we paint profile, um, and we, we, we design systems. You know, the, the value added in there is we paint the profiles. It's absolutely no good to us when the customers send out a meal. You know, you, you, our customers don't want to be going down to a, a local paint house um, to risk, you know, um, very expensive product being painted. So, you know, we, we take we take that risk out and obviously give her um, the, 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 the best job, the best quality job you can do through having those vertical um, spray lines uh, within the paint facilities. Well, one thing that I've seen sort of on social media and things is your design studio, and it's it's in London, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's an absolutely amazing facility. It's, it's the best facility that I think any systems house has, um, not not just across the UK, but particularly in London, where it's very, very expensive. Um, I was going to say. Yeah, we, we have a specifiers, architects, but it's a, um, it's a, it's a really big studio, uh, two floors. We have all of our wow. products sampled in there, full size, even curtain wall in. Um, we get walk-ins off the street from architects to come and have a look around. Um, we've, we've got our sort of board meeting rooms in there, etc. It's a very funky, modern place, concrete walls. We even have our own bar in there. That's how good it is, Richard. That is good. That is very good. Um, and and, and it is, I, I guess it, it, it's a cool, modern space, but it illustrates our products absolutely perfectly. Um, and yeah, we, 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 I think we've been there for three to four years now. Um, and yeah, we'll certainly be there for the next three to four years. Um, and since coming on board, you know, my, my, my team, 
uh, take the customers there regularly uh, for meetings. We take our customers' customers there uh, to look at our products. And our customers, you know, providing you an LUK customer, you can book one of our meeting rooms down there and you can have a board meeting there. You can take your staff there. It's, it's, it's a great part of London as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it can almost be a treat, something slightly different. So, you know, we, we host many events, specify events there. It's really good you should come down so it'd be a great place to do a podcast from yeah definitely that's exactly what i was thinking you read my mind there because i thought oh great space to have you're gonna, you're gonna have to spend you're gonna spend some money on this first. yeah i have to become a <laughs> start an insulation company or something but okay. um so so i understand you also look after marketing and bringing the two together sales and marketing quite powerful isn't it yeah they they, they belong in the same sentence and maybe the same title so um I've been looking after marketing, I think, since around about October. I, I, I don't do any of the hard work, Richard. Let's get this straight. And uh, I don't come up with any of the wonderful ideas. Uh, from the sales point of view, we, we work very close. My whole sales team, the whole marketing team is, is one family. Um, we've now pulled product marketing a lot more into the marketing team. So, so they're really the hub of our business. So we, we, we've got the voice of the customer. We kind of know what they require, what their needs are, et cetera. We feed that into marketing and they come out with concepts. So we, we, we've just recently realized that a lot of our customers really need help with digital marketing. Yeah. You know, they're not social media savvy. I think it's nature of the beast, you know, this business. Got some customers who do great things, got some great turnovers and actually, you know, entrepreneurial. But when it comes down to social media, they, they really don't have too much of an idea. And I think as the market's tightened, they've more thought about what can we market. So we've got a social uh, media expert, which is Antonio, who heads up marketing really for me. So we're going to run some social media seminars in London, in design studios, oh, nice. where customers can come along. Social media will be explained, what you can do with it, how you can do it, and we'll be helping our customers through those stages of you know, becoming social media savvy. And you know, if they reach out to agencies to help them, et cetera, they've got an idea what it is. And we'll be taking them on that sort of first journey. So it's, it's, it's really, really compelling. It's, it's, it's really, really good having both the sales and marketing. You won an award recently as well. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, we did. At the uh, G22, uh, we won an award. We won an award the previous year as well, which was... The... I did see the picture of both of them together. Yeah, it does look yeah so the, the, the G21, that, that I, had, I didn't have much to do with either, to be fair. <laughs> but I collected it. Uh, but the, um, the, the, the G21 was, I think was quite an achievement because I, I was looking back only the last few days. I, I knew we'd won. I knew it was around customer service. But when I actually look back, what we did, it was around helping customers during COVID, during lockdown, and how you come out the other side. And it was optimizing your website. It was good, photog good photography, imagery. It was email marketing, social media. So we, we put a pack together for our fabricators. And, and, you know, it's all online. It's all... It's all there to see for our fabricators on the portal. And actually, it's, it's an amazing business pack. It's, it's like, oh, my life. Did, we deserved an award for that. You, you know, it was, it was, the, 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 it was from our marketing team, really. And it's okay, so we're in lockdown. What can we do for our customers? You know, what, what, what have they got time to concentrate on? What haven't they got time to concentrate on? Where's the market going? And what, what we was doing then is exactly what the car industry were doing five years ago, trying to educate their dealers, trying to bring them into technology world of technology social media savvy etc so we, we started bringing our customers in back then we won an award for it so that's g21 and then 
G22, which I still can't claim any fame to. <laughs> and you know, that, that was around a customer service for Part L. We, 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 we took Part L. Uh, my, my third day in this job was Aston Villa Football Ground. So what's going on? And they told me about this crazy Part L, <laughs> Doc L, compliance. And I was kind of getting my head around and thinking, things have changed. There's compliance. You know, they're, 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 yeah. They're, People take notes of U values. There's building. What on earth's going on? You know, why don't fences just sign everything off anymore? So I was sitting there and I sat through a great presentation for four hours, and we had 78 customers turn up, and it was the third forum. And, and it was actually this is what we think the regulations are doing. These are the facts. This is what we're doing about it. You're the customer. Let's work together. And, and it was just informative. So although it blew right over my head, you know, it took subsequent months for it to start sinking in. It still is. Those events, we didn't charge people from. They were our customer events. Started taking them on the journey. So you, you had the part L. You had your marketing around the part L. You had your installers' guides. You had, we re-engineered our products. You had the journey these guys have been on. I've been here six months. They've been on it for a year now. And we're still not quite there. You, you know, yeah. but... They won the G22 for that and for their, their loyalty and their information to customers. And in all of that journey, uh, we're about time for the questions. So the three on questions. I better go. In the whole of your journey, is there a low point that sticks out to you? Oh, I guess probably going back quite a few years, coming from Cyprus back to the UK, I'm not sure so much low point. It, it was a change. It was huge. Pff, effectively, I didn't have a trade, if you like. Yeah. I had to find a trade at that stage of my life. You know, I, I wasn't blessed with degrees. I didn't have those opportunities or didn't take the opportunities, whichever way you want to look at them. So it's, it's quite scary coming back. And actually, I, f- I think it's probably the first day knocking on those doors in the wet and the cold thinking, I'm sure six months ago I was swimming on a swimming pool. You know, that, that kind of thing. And I think... You have to shake yourself off and have a you know, reality. Come on, it ain't that bad, is it? There's people much worse. But I think as a career, you know, not personally, but I think as a career point, it's like I have to make this work. It has to work because I have to earn money for the family, but I have to work, make it work and I've got to build myself up again. And and I think when you've got a frame of mind, opportunities come to you, mm. such as one did. Yep. It took some time, but it did. So I guess if there was a low point, it's um, it, it was that particular day, knocking in Essex, I remember the street, I remember my feet being frozen, I remember not being able to hold the, and the, that one person signing that one deal that day was like, this is, I've just cracked it. I've cracked it. I felt like I'd sold a million pound villa, whatever it was, you know, I'd signed something up for some gas and electricity in reality, but I had the same feeling. Yeah. And, and then after that, it felt great. I felt quite humbled. And when we went out to parties and, you know, mixed with people who, were directs of business. I was happy. What do you do? I knock doors for a living. But I thought using, no, I knock, I knock doors for a living. That's what I do. And you know, and that, I was proud of it. And that was it. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. Yeah, it <clears throat> makes sense. It does make sense. I still drive around my kids sometimes. You go past it. I used to knock those doors. You know, they, yeah. they get sick of it. Oh, Dad, is there anywhere you didn't knock? You know, so, no, not really. Also, have you got any tips for being out in the cold? Did you double up your socks? Could never get it right. Honestly, this is probably the best part of the podcast. Um, no disrespect, but <laughs> so I could never get right. So I tried. I tried wellies. They were no, no. 
You have to have comfort walking shoes because you're actually doing about six miles walking a day. Wow. That's before like smartwatches as well. Where you can track these things. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you just knew when you was knackered. So, but you couldn't double up your socks unless you've got really big walking shoes. You've got really big walking shoes. That was heavy. Yeah. So you just went for a pair of boot socks. My feet always are cold now. Go for a pair of boot socks. Go back to the car every now. Warm up. Get out. Still ain't sussed it out. I used to be, I'm only asking that because when I was on service, I used to, I tried like the long johns, everything, and oh, yeah. trousers, then I would double up socks, mm. but then I was wearing boots because I usually allow a bit of room in there, yeah, I get them slightly the wide fit, and it would work. But if I didn't have two pairs on, I knew about it, or if I didn't have a proper pair of socks on, you knew about it. Same as my hands. So you, you, you're knocking the door, so you need your hands knocking the door, yeah? Ring a doorbell. So you end up taking your gloves off, and after about three months, winter, you can take your gloves off, and you can last for about two hours. Your hands are cold, they're numb, but you can still use them. <laughs> and if someone invites you in, which, you know, there's a lot of nice people out there, they did, coming out of the cold, I thought, if I come in and fall out, I've got to go through this all again. Yeah. Quite literally, you know? So, no, no I never sussed out the, the, the warm feet thing. Wait a second. So, did you have, you have people invite you in? Yeah, I, I used to go in for... When, when I'd hit a target in the day, you know, I, I enjoyed talking to people. He was on a mission. Yeah, you've got to earn yeah. your money, etc. But particularly on a Saturday afternoon, so you'd build up your deals throughout the week and, you know, you'd do, do particularly well. And I remember one, <laughs> one afternoon I, I was knocking a, um, an estate of bungalows and there's a warden. So he's going to speak to the warden and says, you want to come around with me? This is what we've got. It's all sort of pre-arranged. You'd never just knock on a vulnerable person's yeah. home yeah. and you, 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 you take a choice and it's much more professional. Anyway, so I knocked on this uh, lady's... How's I can't remember her name. I'm normally fairly good names. Anyway, so do you want to come in? So, oh, don't mind. Anyway, so two hours later, we're watching TV. I've got cake. I've got tea. <laughs> I've been there right two hours. Didn't sign the deal. She completely had me over. Completely blindsided. See you next week. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And I walked out there. So I thought, next week. What, what just happened? <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, we used to go in. Definitely. Wow, I never even thought, because I've never pictured it. I'd not really bought anything at the door, yeah, yeah. to be fair. So it's but... amazing. I, I always used to laugh. People say, I've never bought anything on the door before. Every customer never bought anything on the door again. And I was like, that's great. Absolutely fantastic. Don't buy anything on the door again. You know, <laughs> yeah. you'll, you'll be safe. So, But I suppose the nice people as well would let you use the loo and things like that yeah. occasionally. Yeah, could you imagine if um, that, that industry was around now and it, it went through COVID? Could, could you imagine if you relied on knocking doors and it was a lot of people it employed a lot of people and this is why legislation took so long to come in because the government didn't want that many people out of jobs mm. yeah it's definitely part of the reason but can you imagine covid coming along your living just got took away from you yeah. you're never going to get furloughed even now you know you someone knocked on your door if it was that day and age you'd feel uncomfortable wouldn't you mm. it's changed a lot but no my feet are still cold i never sussed it my hands still cold never sussed that <laughs> didn't think anywhere of any of that <laughs> Well, on the flip side, then, is there a high point that sticks out for you in that journey? Uh, I've been lucky. I've got a lot of high points. You know, I've, I've been really, really lucky in what I've done and people I've met. Um, I think every, I think every job's had a high point. Like I can't I can't think of one that hasn't. This has been quite a high point for me because I've, I've, I've switched in. I know I was in fenestration, but I've effectively switched industries. Yeah, you know, a long-established business to be phoned up one day and saying, "Hey, do you fancy talking to this business?" And then, yeah, Michael, our managing director, who's 
been in business and MD for a long time. I'm working around some talented people, and I do sit in my office sometimes, very rarely, once every two weeks for the record. I'm out on the road all the time, and I think, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, you know, this yeah. is quite good. Yeah. It, it, it feels nice. It feels good. You, you're making a difference. So, you know, uh, we buy any car, similar sort of thing. I think it's just feeling humble. You know, it's like, yeah. I'm lucky. Yeah, I know you make your own luck, but some people get more breaks than others, you know, so I don't know which way around it goes. But I think, yeah, I've had, sorry to dodge a question, but I've had quite a lot of high points. No, 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 I like that. You know? Yeah, yeah, that works. That's fair enough. Mm. Last question, the desert island question. If you had to spend two weeks on a desert island with someone from within the fenestration industry, who would it be? It's a really hard one. Cause, it is. You know, bless a lot of people I've met on this in this industry I'd go down a pub with them have a drink like them I might even go out for a meal but to be on a desert island terrifies me as it probably would then with me as well because <laughs> yeah. I'd drive them up the wall I'd be trying to sell them something every two minutes or stealing their bananas whatever you do on a desert island um, I think Tiny Temper I think he wouldn't be a bad bet because he was a double glazing salesman I don't know if you know this I didn't know that so he was a double glazing salesman quite, quite good and he raised money through double glazing to start his first label or particularly promote his first records. So I kind of think that'd be quite cool because that could yeah, definitely yeah. be the coolest. So, so, so somebody so you, you look at them, um, obviously very rich, the rap culture, whatever, but you know, he used to get a window sample bag and sell because he needed to get to where his dream was. So I, I think that would be a good touch reality. Yeah. Probably make Plus also, good. You ain't got radio, so you can sing to you. You, you got <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can yeah. do quite. You got to think of the entertainment value as well. I thought Ted Malt, you know, the original Everest dropped the feather because I I, I I remember reading reading his Wikipedia once because I thought, what has he actually done? Was he just Everest? And I was like, wow, he, he's got some stories to tell. So yeah, but but yeah, Tiny Tempo is probably the best I could do for you. Yeah, that's good. Oh, mm-hmm. that. no, yeah. it's all right. No. Wayne, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming on. And it's an open invitation. So uh, next part of the therapy journey. session after this. You've taken me back so far. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Wayne. Till next time. You're welcome. Cheers.